I want to talk about family integrated worship. That's kind of a mouthful. You're not going to find that phrase in the Bible. I think you'll find the principle in the Bible. And this is why we try to practice it here in this little congregation. God has given the responsibility of training and raising up children to dad. He may delegate it to his wife. He may delegate it to um, teachers. He may delegate it to people in the church. But ultimately, the responsibility still falls back on dad. It's just like a person that's in charge of a business. He may hire someone to do a responsibility, but it's still his responsibility, and he's the overseer. We can shirk that. We can ignore it. We can, by ignorance, be passive in it, but God is still going to hold us responsible dads. So this will be a message for dads. Then ladies and children, I pray that as you listen, you will give the awesome responsibility and the weight that is, and that will be an encouragement to you to support your husband's Or if you're young and you're looking for a husband, you're looking for men that you could support and look that could carry on this obligation. What I'd like to do is I want to be systematic as I can, and I want to start in the Old Testament. And it appears every time I see a worship service in the Old Testament, it was men, women, and children. They didn't hit the front door and go, okay, they were worshiping together. So uh, here's my first reference, Deuteronomy 31.12. It says, The people gathered together, men, women, and children, and thy stranger within thy gates, that they may hear, learn, fear, and observe to do all the words of this law. Now I'm paraphrasing these. Please write these notes down. Go back, look at the verses, look above them, look after them. Make sure I'm not cherry-picking anything out of context. But this is a passage that says everybody was there. Grandpa grandma, mom, dad, children, they were all worshiping together. Second witness, Joshua 8, verse 35. There was not a word Moses commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the congregation of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the conversant strangers among them. So again, we see that it looks like everybody was present. And then finally, I got a third witness out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Shall every word be established? Here's my third witness, Ezra 10 and verse 1. When Ezra prayed, he confessed, he wept, he cast himself down before the house of God, and there assembled a very great congregation of men, women, and children out of Israel. So even the little ones were present. Okay? So when I go to the New Testament, it seems like the pattern is there also, I've got a couple references there. Matthew 18, 1 and 2. Jesus Christ was preaching to the disciples. They were having a conversation. They didn't understand. He says, wait a second, time out. He reached over and grabbed a little baby or a little child and put him on a stool and he used the baby or the child as an example. Matthew 18, 1 and 2. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. So when we see that Jesus is there, it's not a strong proof text, but it appears the women were very, the, the children were very much at hand. Here's a stronger one in Matthew 19. Jesus was preaching, and the disciples actually had the audacity. A family came up with the little kids, and they said, "Don't you know the cry room's over there? Get the kids over here." And Jesus says, "Uh-uh, bring them on." He says, they cry, I've got a loud voice, I can preach over top of them. No, I'm being silly here, but you understand what I'm saying. Matthew 19, 13 and 14, then 
were there brought unto him little children, and to the disciples rebuke them? Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. And then one more. I want you to notice this. I'm going to use some reasoning with you. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn here real quick. In Matthew, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus Christ is, uh, is, is being preached here, and Paul's writing a New Testament church. He's writing the church at Ephesus. And basically what he did is he wrote a letter, and he says, take this letter and read it to the congregation. Okay? You got the scene? Okay, so we don't have canonized scripture. We don't have our Bibles. The church just constituted. The Bible hasn't been created. The New Testament hasn't been put together yet. And a letter comes from Paul, and he says, read this to the church. It comes by Federal Express, or they print it off the computer of email. You know, I'm going to be a silly guy. But the letter comes. You get it? And they read it to the church. And as they're reading to the church, they address wives, and he gives them a list of duties. Husbands, and he gives them a list of duties. Employees, he gives them a list of duties. Masters or employers, he gives them a list of duties. And then he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. They were there listening to the letter being read, and that was the part that was dedicated for them. They heard the word of God being preached, and that section was them. So again, as I look at it, it sure appears that they were present in New Testament worship. Okay? All right, let me go a little further. Now, what I did is I actually went, and I usually don't do this. I don't like coming up here and beating up a straw man. But I was really curious, people that push not integrated family worship, but segregated family worship, I was wondering, what possible scripture do they use? And I found three texts. Again, I did my search, and that's all I could find was three texts to justify it. And I just wanted to show you what's being used to justify what what many churches think is is the appropriate way. Okay, well, the first one is a real head scratcher. <clears throat> it's in First Samuel one twenty two and twenty three. Now I'm going to kind of paraphrase the account here, but if you remember, Hannah could not have a baby. And she, oh, it just tore her up so bad. There's a lot of women, the baby, a lot of women in the Bible that couldn't have children that just tore them up. There was Sarah and Rebecca and um, um, Elizabeth. There, there was a lot of women in the Bible that couldn't. And the Bible says in Proverbs, there's four things that'll never be satisfied. And one is the dry ground, and one is fire, and and one of those. Then there is the barren womb. There, there, there's something about a woman that wants to have a baby that can't, that's just, just aches. And God knew this, and he's writing it, and that was Hannah's case. So if you remember the account in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah wanted to have a, a baby so bad, and she prayed, and she just prayed, and she fretted. Matter of fact, she was praying so hard that Eliah came by, and he says, Lady, you're drunk. And she says, no, I'm not. I'm just sad because I want to have a baby. So she made this oath. I don't know where the oath came from. But she says, Lord, if you give me a baby, I will dedicate that baby to you. And she conceives. And she has a baby named Samuel. And when the baby's born, 
Her husband says, okay, it's time to go up and worship. And Hannah says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to go up and worship until he's weaned. It's okay, because what happened was she made an oath that as soon as he was weaned, I'll take him and deliver him to Eli. This is not a passage to show segregated worship. This is so out of context. This is a woman that made an oath that was going to turn over her baby. And she said, no, I'm not going to turn over the baby till the baby's weaned. And then I'll turn over the baby. And she did it. That oath just confuses me. If my wife made an oath like that without me knowing about it, I'd say, no way, Lord, I cancel the oath. Do you understand? But that's what happened. But that is not a proof text for segregated worship. Do you understand? So that's, that's kind of, in my mind, that's a silly one. Here's one that's a little more difficult. In Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3, this is a passage, and this language is pretty sharp, okay? They were having a great big worship service. This is a great revival. They just finished building the walls. Oh, I love this passage because Ezra, the book before Nehemiah is Ezra. Ezra had a burden by the Lord, and he says, you know what, I feel like I'm going to be called to preach. I don't know where I'm going to be called to preach. I don't know how I'm going to be called to preach. I don't know when I'm going to preach. I don't even know who I'm going to preach to, but I feel like I'm going to be called to preach. So he started studying his Bible, and he started making outlines for messages and sermons. And finally comes, Nehemiah comes along, and the Lord inspires him. They rebuild the walls, and he finally says, Ezra, i got a preaching appointment for you. He says, oh, get ready, I'm ready to go. Yep. And they're having this revival, and it's recorded here in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And it says, he read until midday before men, women, and those that could understand. This does not prove that babes were present. Let me reason with you, okay? Now, I just, in our prayer request, I just numbered off a lot of members that aren't here today. But let's suppose I made this comment. I said, today, all our members are present. Does that mean we don't have any visitors? No, it doesn't mean that at all, does it? This is not a proof text to say the babies weren't there. What it says is all that can understand were there, but it doesn't say they weren't. And if they weren't, we got a one-month-old back here. Let's, the one-month wasn't here. Who's watching the one-month-old? Right? But it says all the people that could hear were here. Do you understand? It's just not a proof text in my mind. Here's the last one. Titus 2. Now here, we have to segregate crowds. Okay? I want to talk about Titus 2 in a New Testament church. I want to spend some time on this. This is really, really important. But let me read the passage. Titus 2, verses 1 through 8. But speak thou the things that which become sound doctrine. Paul is writing his son in the ministry, Titus. And he says, Titus, you're now pastoring a church. And I'm writing this letter to encourage you. I'm not there to look over your shoulder anymore. You're out on your own. And I'm just encouraging you. And I want you to preach. And what he basically says in verse 2, he says, I want you to preach to the old men. And verse 3, he says, I want you to preach to the older women. Verse 4, he says, I want the older women to preach to the younger women. Preach? No, teach. We'll get into that in a second. And then he says, I want to preach you to preach to the young men also. So there's four. This looks like segregated worship, doesn't it? Well, I want to talk about this. Let me give you an example of one. 
from, from the female, but also the men. I'll start with the men. Because we as men get together, we regularly get together. And you're going, Pastor, you're a hypocrite. How could you possibly justify you getting together with men and preach family integrated worship? And I do it with a clear conscience. And the reason why is we got together about three or four weeks ago. There's about eight or ten of us there. There was a 70-something. There was a 60-something. There was a couple 50-somethings. We didn't have any 40-somethings. We had a couple 30-somethings. We had a couple 20-somethings. And we had a teen. Ladies, you'll never guess what we talked about. Clothes, haircuts, and deodorant. You know why? Because one of our 20-somethings had an interview that week. It was not a Bible study. We did not exegete a book of the Bible. We did not do a character study. We did not talk about eternal doctrine. You know what it was? It was old men sharing experiences with younger men. Our, when we get together, our curriculum is tied to Titus 2 stuff. And you see all the stuff to the older men in verse 2 and all the stuff to the younger men in, in verse 6 through 8. That's what we did. And it's a good thing. I actually had a blast. And we talked about interviews and we talked about hard questions. We talked about presenting yourself. We talked about presenting yourself to a boss, presenting yourself as you have employees, presenting yourself to customers, presenting yourself to your wife. Ladies, I hope your men have been dressing better this week or this, this month. We've been talking about how to present yourself to get a wife, right? We, we, we called her, it was older men giving advice about interviews and that kind of thing. There's a time and a place for that. But there's no way in the world you can call that a worship service. Amen? Okay. And as we go back, that's all we've ever talked about. That's what our time is together. Older men sharing experiences with the younger men and letting younger men ask questions. Okay. Let me give you an example from the female perspective. Okay. <clears throat> now this happened, this happened back at the last church that I was at. Okay. So there was a, there was a young lady in the church, a young sister. She got married right out of high school. And as she got married right out of high school, Within a year, year and a half, she had a baby. And after a year, year and a half after that, she had another baby. And my wife, Deborah, was looking at her, and she knew some, she was struggling. Okay? I think I need to step back a little bit further than that. Yeah, let me, let me step back for a second, okay? Most of you know my particular family situation I was blessed with a God-fearing wife, but the Lord took her with cancer and left me a widower with three young boys. Okay? So then I found this crazy lady to take on all four of us, myself and the three young boys, who at the time were probably four, six, and eight. Four, six, and eight. So she took on a widower with three children, four, six, and eight. And within a short period of time, she became a wife. She became a mother. She became a pastor's wife. 
and she struggled. And she needed a Titus II older woman in her life. And the church where we were at, no one was stepping up. So she was looking. And you know what she did? She found one. She found one on the radio. Elizabeth Elliot. Fantastic woman. And you know what she did? She talked about Titus 2, 3 through 5 stuff. And that's where she stayed. And she says, Dolph, I found this lady. And she said, you got to listen to her. And I listened to her. And I, she's fantastic. But the problem was, by the time she found her, she was pretty old. Right? And within a couple of years, she retired. I think she had to. She had some senility. I think that was her problem. She had to retire. And they got a lady to take her place. And the lady did okay. But she wasn't the same. You know why? Because she kept getting out of her lane and she was preaching. She wasn't sticking to Titus 2 curriculum. And I go, Deborah, stick with the reruns. So that's what, what we did. So I share this because now my wife is now a couple years past that, maybe five, ten years. And she says this young sister that's become a new mom, instant mother, family of two, and she sees her struggling, and she says, you know what? She needs some help. I needed help, and she needed help. Now, listen, I preach to this to church because it's got to go two ways. Do you understand? I got to have the older women willing to expose themselves, but you need the younger women ready to receive it. They both got to be working. Amen? Okay. So, so she, reaches, she, she says, Dolph, this is what I want to do. And she says, I want to take two other sisters with me. I want to meet like once a month just to encourage the sister. And I says, that sounds like a good plan. I'm going to use Elizabeth Elliot's stuff. I said, I like her stuff. It's, that's good too. I says, I got one more suggestion. I says, include her mother. She said, okay. So the five of them, one, two, yeah, five of them met. And they went once a month, and about six months go by, and things are better. She's happy, husband's happy, kids are happy, everything's great. But then what happened was, Grandma noticed everything was great. And Grandma said, can I come? And they said, okay. She came to the first meeting, and you know what they were doing? They were said, aged men, white lies, let's you know, verse 4, teach the younger women that they love their husbands and to, be their, and to love their children. As God is my witness, I don't know what my wife was talking about. I didn't ask what my wife was talking about. I trusted my wife to deal with the situation. Am I saying that as discreetly as I can? Grandma came in and said, you shouldn't be talking about that. What, do you want me to do that? It's supposed to make you smile how silly that is, right? She was doing exactly what the Bible said. Do you understand? And this grandmother kept steering it to doctrine. And I said, Deborah, you got to shut it down. What a sad thing that is. Do you understand? So... When women get together, it's a glorious thing when aged women, 
and I'm just using language the Bible is, is sharing experiences with younger women that are going through marriage for the first time, that are going through children for the first time, that are going through multiple children for the first time. It's a great blessing, and that's the way the new church is supposed to do it. Notice what Paul said to Titus. He said, Titus, you teach the older men, you teach the younger men, you teach the older women, but stay away from them young women. I mean, there's discretion in it. There's every which way you look at it. There is wisdom in that. Amen? And that's exactly what's happening. So I, with a clean conscience, without any hypocrisy, can teach Titus 2, older women blessing and sharing experiences with younger women, older men sharing and blessing experience with younger men, and do it in a way that's consistent with the Bible, but also with family integrated worship. So that's my stance. And if you have any questions, you're free to talk. We'll talk all you want afterwards. But that's how I, with a clear conscience, can do both. Okay? So let's continue on. I want to go back to the principle that God would hold men responsible for their families. Okay? Now, we've read these before. Here's a Here's a take charge kind of father, Abraham. This is a verse that you well know. Uh, Genesis 18, 19. This is God speaking of Abraham. He said, he will command his children and his household and keep the way of the Lord. I like Abraham. He's a good dad. And he takes responsibility for that. Joshua said the same thing in Joshua 24, 15. Matter of fact, this is on t-shirts. It's on plaques. It's on um, Needlework, you see him hanging on the wall all the time. This is a very famous verse, Joshua 24, 15. But as for me, this is Joshua in my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was a take, kind, take charge kind of guy that he was going to make sure that his children knew it. Okay? And here's the last one in Hebrews 12, 6 through 7. This is speaking of the Lord, but notice the language here in Hebrews 12. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? There is an assumption that dad is going to put children in mind of the Lord. And he's, it, it, the assumption is it's so well known among the community that he says, you know, God does the same way as dad does. Well, God does the same way as dads used to do. Not the way we do it now in America. The responsibility is dad's. It's mine. It's my responsibility. You know, there's an old saying, wait till your father gets home. There's some wisdom in that, right? There's some things mom can't take care of. And I got to admit, when I came home, the last thing I want to do, walk in the door, oh, got to take care of some kids, and you just want to go right back on out. But that's your job, guys. And there's some things you can't take care of. So expect it. But I guarantee it, if you do take care of it, you're going to have to take care of it less and less over time. If you just delay it, you're just going to put it off. Deuteronomy 6, 7. Teach them. This is talking about fathers teaching their children. God's statutes. Diligently unto thy children, talk to them when thou sit at home, when thou work, when thou go to church, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. In other words, teach them every chance you get. When you're doing chores, when you're doing sports, 
when you're helping around the house, when you're having fun, when you're eating, when you're playing, every, time, every chance you get. Okay? Ephesians 6 and verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It didn't say parents, it says fathers. Y'all, if you're, if you're a young lady, you need to be looking for a man that's willing to do this. And gentlemen, if you want to get a godly woman, you've got to be a man that she can see that you are doing this. So you're ready to do this, that you want to do it, your desires to do it, and you're not going to push everything on her. Okay? And, oh, I skipped one, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians 2.11. Here's another passage where Paul is assuming something. He's talking as a pastor to the church. He says, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. We just read the Hebrews 12 passage. God is assuming that fathers are going to act a certain way, and he's comparing himself to fathers. Paul is doing the same thing as a pastor of this church of Thessalonica. He's assuming fathers are going to take care of children, and he says, as a pastor, I'm going to do the same thing. The assumption is there. Now, I notice our culture has perverted that. You know, when we pray a simple prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, you've got to thank God if you were raised in a godly home with a good father. Because when you pray that, you have a semblance of an idea of what that means. But think how many kids in America that are raising up right now, and they've never had a father. They don't know what a father is or a godly man in their life. And they pray, our father. See, that's a little picture of who God in heaven is. And if they don't have that picture, they don't know who God in heaven is. Gentlemen, we need to step up and be that kind of father. It's a picture of God. And your marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ and his relationship with the church. I'm going to kind of stretch out here. I'm going to do a parallel. This is a great big illustration. In Nehemiah's day, <clears throat> we already talked about Nehemiah. We talked about that revival service in Nehemiah chapter 8. But let me kind of paraphrase everything that went on in chapters 1 through 7. Nehemiah came up to Jerusalem and he looked at the city and he says, wow, he was, he was in tears. The city was broken down. The walls were tore down. They were crumbling. It was just, it looked like a heap of stones. And he said, this used to be the Lord's city. This used to be the Lord's people. It used to be where the temple was, where God's people worshiped. And he looked at the city and he was just tore up. And he prayed and he confessed his sins and he repented and he got God, please, and he fasted. And you know what? He got permission from his king to rebuild a city, and he even got provisions. So he comes up, and he starts looking at the city, and he gathers all the elders of the city, and he says, we're going to rebuild this city. And I find it interesting the way he rebuilt the city. He didn't say, I'm the manager. I'm going to oversee the whole thing, and I'm going to tell everybody what to do. That's not what he did. This is what he did. He said, Kemp's, you take care of this section of the wall. Nuns, you take care of this section of the wall. Ogles, you take the sixth section of the wall. Adams, you take the sixth section of the wall. Woodfords, you take the care of this section of the wall. 
and they built the wall. Kunzes, I left out the Kunzes. Kunzes, you get a you get a chunk too. I'm not gonna let you off the hook either. You take this section of the wall, and you know what Nehemiah did? He circled the city. What did he do when he circled the city? He wasn't micromanaging. What was he doing? He was encouraging. He was removing obstacles. He was supplying them with the stuff that they needed. There were some folks that came that didn't want the city rebuilt. It was Tobiah, Sanballat, and a guy named Geshem. And, and they did everything they could to keep from the city being rebuilt. And you know what Nehemiah did? He took care of those three rascals. He did. He said, don't worry, I'll take care of those three rascals. You just keep on going. This is what we're going to do. They're threatening you. Don't worry, we'll, we'll take care of that. He said, well, I'll tell you what you do. We're going to work in shifts. First of all, when you work, make sure your spear is right by your hand. Okay? And then when you sleep, make sure you sleep in your clothes in case they run the city. And then he says, we're going to work in shifts. Part of you are going to haul away the rubbish. Part of you are going to rebuild. And part of you are going to guard. And we're going to work in shifts. So he did from that standpoint. He removed the obstacles. What's that got to do with family worship? Y'all, it's the same thing. I'm the pastor. I'm not here to micromanage you training your children up. It's my job to circle the city. It's to remove the barriers. Amen? It's to encourage. It's to supply dads what you need. That's my job. That's how the church is going to be built. It's going to be built by the fathers. The church is simply something to support and to encourage and to help. Amen? We are not here to do it. We are here to support. That's my job, to help rams feed lambs. I don't know how to teach it. Come over to my house. I'll teach you. I'll show you how to teach it. I'll help you try to teach it. Well, why don't you just teach my kids? Nope, that's your job. That's your job. I'll do whatever. I'll bend over backwards. I'll give you notes. I'll do whatever I can. Whatever I can to help you be successful, that's your job. Because that's going to make the strong church. You're saying, Brother Dolph, that's just so unreasonable. Well, first of all, I do believe it's God's pattern. And the second is, the other has proved to be a colossal failure. You read that book, Already Gone? You know Already Gone is? Already Gone was a man that did a study on our children. And everybody thinks that college chases our kids away from the Lord. That book found out that they were gone before they even went to college, already gone. 85% of them were done. And you know why? Because dad did not take responsibility. That was the bottom line. It doesn't work. So we're going to go God's way. All right. So that's the Nehemiah parallel. Let me kind of go towards the end here. We've just spent three weeks. Oh, my time's almost gone. We've just spent three weeks looking at family and gender. Week number one, we looked at men and women. And God 
made us different on purpose. Just like a basketball team has guards and forwards and centers, different athletic abilities to do different things together, they come for a team and they make it. Businesses have personalities with salesmen, accountants, and managers. All those, ma- those personalities come together to have a functional, successful business. Well, God made men and women with different attributes, and when they come together, they can be successful as a home. That's the way God designed it. You can't have family without the gender. You can't have gender without the family because that was the purpose. And that's what we did on week two. One. Week two, we talked about men and God holding men responsible for their marriages, for their families, for um, uh, leadership. And when men and w- don't lead, we find out that the curse is when children and women do lead, God's usually in judging of people. And we come to week three. We even bore down on men, God holding men responsible. God's holding men responsible for the spiritual education of your children. It's easy to blame the preacher. But this isn't me just trying to duck responsibility. I'm stand ready and willing, able to try to help y'all. But ultimately the responsibility is yours. So I come back here and this is going to be a wrap up of those three lessons. Marriage describes the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Okay, so I can go through and you can look at all the descriptions between Jesus Christ and the church. We call him the bridegroom. The church is called the bride. We see in Revelations 20 of the bride coming down, Jesus meeting on the last day. There's all kinds of language talking about the, the church. And, the, and, that. and the thing is, is when your children are growing up and they don't see a good marriage, they don't see a good husband in Jesus Christ because they don't know what a good husband is. When their children are growing up and they don't see a good father, they don't know our Heavenly Father is because they don't understand the attributes. Seeing these descriptions that God is using in Hebrews 12 and over here again in First Thessalonians, the assumption is everybody knows what a father looks like. Well, not in America today. No one knows what a father looks like. I can't say no one. Very few know what a father looks like. Y'all, men, we need to step up and we need to fill these roles. Just our walks, our shoe leather is going to be the witness. You don't know how to teach your kids? Just walk the walk. You'll be teaching them. And you want some words? I'll try to help you with the words. But the walk is the thing that's going to make the most difference. So I'm going to skip this language. This is something I got to stress. Okay. So entwined is family in God's word. When you're talking about a saint, when you're talking about a child of God, did you know there's three ways to join a family? You can be adopted into a family, you can be born into a family, or you can marry into a family. That's the only three ways you can get into a family. That's it. And it turns out God's got all three covered. In Ephesians 1, God says, I adopted you. Amen? In John 3, he says, you're born of the Spirit. The Spirit's got you, right? In Ephesians 5, I speak of Christ concerning the church. Be a good husband and wife reverence her husband. 
I speak concerning. He's got you all three ways through the Trinity. The Father through adoption, the Holy Spirit through birth, Jesus Christ through marriage. It's all right there. And if you don't understand these concepts, you don't understand even being in the family of God. That's how essential this is. That's how essential a father stepping up. That's how essential it is a wife doing her role too. And if, if you've got nothing different, yes, men and women are different. I didn't say one is better than the other. I said they're different. Not once through this whole series did I say one's better than the other. They're different. They're different on purpose. So we can be adopted in. We can be born in. And we, we are, um, through Christ, there's, there's a marriage there. I want to just, without understanding of marriage and family, there's so much scripture that is just silliness. Look, look at Jeremiah 3, verse 8. This is talking about Israel backsliding. Israel committed adultery. God put her away because of, and gave her a bill of divorcement. God is talking about his relationship with a nation, and he's talking about adultery and divorce, a bill of divorcement. He's assuming you have an understanding of what family is to understand what he did with a nation Israel. Isn't that something? John 3.29, he hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom rejoiceth. He's talking about relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Revelations 2.4, this is one of my favorites. The Ephesians were a good church. We, I love that epistle. It, there's so much balance. It's got one through three, eternal doctrine, four through six. It's got the practical stuff we do. What a wonderful book that is. They were a great church. But in Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Revelations 2, he writes that church and he says, you know, you're doing well. Your, your doctrine is solid. You're defending the truth. Heresy sneaking in and you're catching it. You're doing the works. There's only one problem. You know what your problem is? You left your first love. What kind of language is that for a church? Because he's assuming the relationship between a husband and a wife, between Jesus Christ and the church. You left your first love. What did they start loving? Well, what are the stuff you start loving? Start loving money more than your wife? You start loving your job more than your wife, your career? You start loving your kids more than your wife? Start loving your hobbies more than your wife? Chances are you're loving yourself more than your wife, right? Well, here's a church that started loving all those stuff but more than their husband. And that's what the description is here. And we get down to the real world. Maybe you love a bottle more than your wife. Maybe you love a, a drug more than your wife. Maybe you love the letters after your name, your career, your, your, your accolades more than your wife. Here's a tough one. Maybe you love your ministry more than your wife. You know the, the old phrase of PK? The reputation of PKs, preacher kids? It's for a purpose. Spent too much time on the ministry and not enough at home. Y'all, it needs to apply to everyone. Amen? Here's some of my favorite pictures, and then I'll close with this. I love Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, those were the verses I read to my kids even when they were, my boys when they were five years old 
And it's so funny. I, I, I read in Proverbs 31 the, these attributes because as they were growing up, I was reading these attributes to them and I says, okay, this is what you need to look for in a wife. This is what you need to look for in a wife. And I did it at age five, I did it at age eight, I did it at age 11, I did it at age 14, and all of a sudden the girls started coming along, and now they're three, four, and five, and I'm reading to the teenagers, but they're three, four, five, and six, and I'm reading Proverbs 31, and you know what? They're getting it too. And they're realizing, hey, that's what I need to become. But you know who this Proverbs 31 woman is? It's a good picture of the local church. You can take all those attributes of what you need to be to be looking for a wife, all those attributes you need to be to be a Proverbs 31 wife, but you know you can put all those attributes and you can put every one of them on the local church. That's what she needs to be. Whoa, that's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. But just like <laughs> if you're a young man and you're saying, okay, there's 31 verses, or there's, yeah, no, there's... um. Was there 22 verses, right? 22 verses from 10 to 31. That's 22 attributes. I'm going to hold out for a 22 out of 22. Guess what? You're never going to get married. Because you're not a 22 for 22. Amen? So if you're looking for a church, you're looking at holding out for a 22 out of 22, guess what? You'll never join a church. Because you're not a 22 for 22 church member, Right? But the goal is, are you heading in that direction? Okay? Yeah, I'll not go there, but you can do the same thing with the woman in Ezekiel 16 that married God, the, 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 the father there. You can also go to the elect lady in Second John. Those are all pictures of a local church. They're real living, but they're pictures of a local church. This is what we need to be. So without an understanding of family, without understanding of gender, without understanding of marriage, you know what? We were not going to understand three quarters of the Bible's illustration about the way we should act and what a church is and how a church should act. But maybe we're moving in that direction.